Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santos here, your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. Hey, and it's Dr. Ward, your MacGyver ER doc. It's a thing. This is Dr. Praz, the Sandman, bringing sweet dreams over the radio waves. And Susanna San Diego, I am your friendly neighborhood surgeon. And right now, where in the world is Susanna Samaniego? You were waiting two seasons, two seasons to make that joke. (laughs) (laughs) Totally worth it, wasn't it? I love it. So I'm currently working at a small hospital in Western Maine, a place called Farmington in beautiful Foothill. That sounds fantastic. I also appreciate the perfect small town name of Farmington. Maine is not very creative, apparently. <laughs> no, what do you do here? <laughs> you farm? Oh, farming town. All right. This is the first time we've had the entire crew all on the same episode, which is perfect because it is time for another one of our twice monthly. Journal clubs! Yay! Sweet. Yay! Go journal club! Huzzah! And we are very lucky that uh, Susanna could join us because this week all our articles are surgically based. Medical, surgical, medical, surgical. So as you can see, we've, we've managed to bridge. Guys, guys, we have to come together as a field and we can't have this medicine surgery hatred. For each other. I, I'm going to reach out this divide. I, I actually, I'm really glad that Dr. Praz is here because he really is the, the bridge between these two sides. I mean, he brings together the medical with the surgical all in one bay. It's true. He's a regular gas. I'm the hybrid pastor child. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of gas, you guys. Oh, no. Hit it. Hit it. Segway. Our very first story, before we get into the serious science, have any of you heard of this story coming out of Tokyo? <laughs> not before this. Not before today. <laughs> I, I have not heard of it. I actually, though, I think the, the, a great kind of intro to this is if anyone has seen an early episode of Scrubs, where uh, the attending physician is there with the Todd and Dr. Turk. And they're like, what is that smell? Did you nip the bowel? Did you? What's going on? I can't figure out what made that smell. I do remember this. And Todd goes, after 10 minutes of exploring around the abdomen, Todd goes, sir, that smell was a fart I made. Get out of my ER! <laughs> Does that happen a lot, Proz? And, and Susanna, as their actual Susanna. <laughs> you know, don't... You don't have to incriminate yourselves, but you can incriminate your colleagues. Well, um, the OR is actually the perfect place for flatulence from 
my colleagues. But everyone's wearing masks and you always have the smell of burning flesh everywhere. It's essentially a victimless crime. <laughs> well, maybe not so much anymore because across the board, the latest news story to come up on my feed because of my mature science leanings is the headline, Fart blamed for causing a fire during surgery. I actually, I actually, I actually found out about this on the news when I was in Washington D.C. that made national news that this Tokyo fire in the OR happened due to a patient farting on the table. <laughs> oh, the patient, not one of the physicians. Not one of the physicians. Hey, hey, whoever smelt it. <laughs> no, you can't. Whoever smelled it, dealt it. That's who they blamed it on. We know. <laughs> That's who they blamed it on. Would it, can you imagine if this poor patient is sitting there going, I'm so sorry. And the whole time the surgeon's like, oh, God, don't don't find out. Please don't find out. <laughs> they probably said, raise your hand if you didn't fart. And the one person who... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who said who? And then they like made a pact of silence and like signed it in blood. <laughs> said, Nobody will... <laughs> Let's hear about what, what happened. So, Susanna, you said already heard about this? I did. I heard about it on the news and it was just um, about how a patient underwent burns after a fire started while she was in the operating room due to her fart catching on fire. Of the funny part of it, it actually is a true problem in the operating Part of our safety checklist that we do at the beginning of every operation includes a discussion with everybody in the room on the team about what level fire risk this surgery Yeah. And yes, it's funny that this happened because of a fart, but imagine what better the two would start on fire with methane gas. It's not usually something you hear about because the patient's flatulence or the doctors or the anesthesiologists or anybody, for that matter, are usually not part of the office. But gas in general is very flammable, especially oxygen, which we use a lot in surgery. And then we have a lot of combustible instruments. In an operation, a lot of times I cauterize areas of the body to stop bleeding. And that cautery equipment is electric fire, basically. It's something plugged into an outlet that uh, heats up the metal tip of my instrument to fire level. And if there's oxygen, methane gas, or anything else flammable in the way, it can catch on fire. Whoa. Whoa. It literally ca causes a spark in between the, the bovie and, this, and the soft tissue, right? And then there, we have other energy devices out there nowadays, and in this particular case, this was a young woman in her 30s having an operation with a laser device, which is another energy device that can ignite things on fire. And what happened was the laser was used when she passed gas, and that methane gas caught on fire. It spread to the, um, the sterile drapes, the, uh, the sheets that were on top of her, and that caught on fire, and she sustained burn. Wow. No, I mean, but this had to have been... Uh, a, a bit of a massive cloud of gas, though, because I mean, you know, the I think every little kid has heard of tales, at least, of lighting your fart. It's not an easy thing to do. Santosh, did you try and light your farts on fire as a child? No. <laughs> I... <laughs> not as a child. You did it last weekend. It's a story. I mean, you hear you hear things. You hear. I mean, I heard things. Was it farts? Were they lit? 
So, <laughs> but it's it's not. But I think it's the right right time at the right uh, place, right? If the laser just happens to ignite that one patch of、uh, methane cloud, it just it just it that's what a freak accident. Right. Exactly. So this is an unusual event. I don't think we should we should tell everybody. It's not so unusual, though.、And、oh, okay. Sterile drapes that we use in the operating room, these big sheets of of clean material that are disposable that we stick around the surgical site and separate the rest of the body from where we're working, are really good at trapping gas underneath them. So、oh, a lot of times we have to be careful、mm-hmm. with, for example, Pros can can share on his end of things. How much oxygen are we using? It's especially risky for head and neck surgery, facial surgery,、um, where Pros is working, is trying to get oxygen into the patient, making sure that they're getting their breathing taken care of while they're under anesthesia. He needs to use oxygen, but then on the other side of the table, the surgeon that's working with these energy devices has to be careful that oxygen is. Cooling under the drape and then filtering up into the operative field and catching on fire because of the energy device. There are specific cases, usually tracheostomies, where、um, because there's a, such a high risk of fire and because there's such continuity between the airway and the surgical field that we actually have to use very low oxygen concentrations just to try to prevent this from happening. So this is a balance that you have to strike between. Uh, supplying enough oxygen to your patient to keep them healthy, and keeping it low enough so that、uh, the concentration or the flow low enough so that you don't create a fire hazard. So this basically sounds like all those times I tell my patients before surgery they have to be NPO, meaning they can't eat, and they whine. And they moan and they complain. I can simply tell them I'm going to hand them this article and say I could let you eat, but you might be putting yourself at risk for a very literal silent but deadly. <laughs> I think this this is because this is way more convincing than oh you might throw up and aspirate and this kind of thing. This is a much more obvious yeah. Well, <laughs> here's the thing. With that, you might throw up and aspirate, or you could fart and cause body burns. <laughs> Now, with that said,、um, I'm sure it'd be very effective to scare patients into being compliant. The NPO eight-hour guideline typically applies to food or any other particular material in the stomach. If you want to make sure that the bowels and especially the colon are completely clear, they'd probably have to fast for at least a day. Absent of any like、uh, bowel prep that was used to try to forcefully evacuate everything, but I can still tell them the silent but deadly comment. Yes, because really that's what I want to do. Not to mention all the surgeons and anesthesiologists in the room. I mean, they're full of hot air. So, <laughs> bam! <laughs> Don't worry, there's no energy sources near me. Shots fired. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I guess we know how the rest of this episode is going to bear out. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to the next story. So the next one, Santosh, on the last Journal Club, you and I talked a little bit about the peanut patch and how it used the idea of desensitization, like nicotine, 
to help you start the peanut habit. But this desensitization technique used to really be something we would only see in the allergy immunology field, and now it's making its way into surgery and may increase the number of transplants people can get. Very nice, yeah. So transplant medicine is a wonderful mix of surgical and medical disciplines. And one of the first things you have to do is get a match. They always say, oh, we got a perfect match. You might hear your doctor someday say, I got a 10 out of 10 match. So what this refers to are little antigens. So you have your white blood cells and all of your other cells, actually. And they have little bumps on them, little you know, receptors. And these receptors serve to tell your body, hey, this is me. Don't attack me. Don't use your immune magic on me. Okay, I'm, I'm right here. I'm helping you out. Well, if you take that and you put it into somebody else, all those little antigens were kind of tailor-made for the original host, so to speak, or the donor. The recipient, even though they match up, even if they match up to a large degree, not all of those little receptors have been discovered. And for some reasons, even if you have a perfect match, that person, the recipient's immune system will go and attack that new organ as if it were an infection or a foreign body, saying, get this thing out of here, it's, it doesn't belong. So we do have to somehow create tolerance so that the body accepts this new organ as its own. And this can be anything from a little flap of skin all the way up to a whole heart or a kidney. It's essentially the same principle with blood transfusion and why people with similar blood types can only receive blood from like people, right? Yeah, so it's, those are different antigens on the surface of cells. And luckily, we have a little bit more play with those. But yeah, essentially. Santos, you mentioned before that you have to have the right combination of six antigens on the kidneys for a perfect match. And antigens are molecules on a cell that have the ability to trigger an immune response, which is what we don't want. So you want all your antigens to match up with the transplant, the incoming antigens, because then they'll say, hey, we're friends, we get along, everything's okay. Because if even one of those doesn't match, it can lead to problems where the body recognizes the organ is foreign and tries to attack it. So these patients are now undergoing a technique called desensitization in which antibodies are filtered from a patient's blood, a little bit like dialysis. That's really, really cool. A lot of these little antigens are soluble. They're floating around in the blood. We're up to 10, actually. Now, you can't necessarily dialyze the molecules which are attached to the kidney cells, which are attached as part of the kidney, but the soluble ones you can definitely dialyze right out. Or not dialyze, but immunoclear. <laughs> How do we actually do this? Do they actually hook up to a machine and filter the blood like they would, or is there some other way to So they, they do filter out in a dialysis-type machine, and this comes from the New England Journal of Medicine. Basically, they have to go desensitization in a dialysis-type machine. Like a plasmapheresis type of... Exactly. So what you have is, you imagine a sheet of filter paper, but it's actually wound tight into a column. And you have those antigens which are expressed on the surface of cells. Well, you can actually take complementary molecules. A lot of the time, these are antibodies. And actually bind them to that filter paper so that when the blood 
goes past the filter paper, it's washed over it, then any cells containing the antigens that you don't want will stick to this piece of filter paper. Now that's a bit crude. Um, the surfaces that, that my explanation, the surfaces that are used are not, you know, paper like you'd write on. But the principle is just about the same. And to be perfectly clear, these new antigens that the body regenerates to replace the filtered ones, for some reason seem to be less likely to attack a transplanted organ, but nobody quite knows why yet. So we know it works, but we're not entirely sure what's going on. <laughs> but to be fair, Josh, in the history of medical science, we've never operated that way before. Without knowing what's going on? Yeah, exactly. We've always been 100% on top of mechanism of action. Would would uh, Susanna or Praz care to comment on that? Because... <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> I just want to put in my two cents there, how yeah, yeah. this could be a huge <laughs> life changer yeah. and life giver to so many people out there. Um, one of the things that I don't think is common knowledge is how many people die waiting for an organ. Um, there just is such a supply and demand issue here. The demand is there, but the supply is not. The more people that are able to get on a donation list to go when you, the next time your driver's license is up and you want to be an organ donor, think about signing that list. You know, you're, you're going to save a life. And now if we can desensitize people so they can get an unmatched organ, that yeah. can be an even bigger help for them to have a chance at living. Which will be great because we can't always rely on a bunch of college students in bathtubs filled of ice after a night of drinking to get our kidneys. <laughs> well, well, this is, this is great because... Now, it, since desensitization takes time, right? I mean, if anyone who's gone through allergy desensitization knows it takes three to six months just for, just for the initiation phase, and then it takes two more years for the maintenance phase. So this, I think, this would be really useful if you have a cousin or a brother or a friend, Josh, hint, hint, if, <laughs> if I ever need a kidney, if I ever need a kidney. And um, <laughs> did you just ask for one of my kidneys on air? <laughs> I did. Um, just in case, you know, but then if I needed it, you can go on dialysis and stay alive for quite a few years. But while you're doing that, you can get potentially get desensitized for a live donor, right? This is true. So, Josh, can you elaborate a little bit? Is it the antibodies from the recipient that are being filtered out here or the antigens from the donor organ? It is the HLA antigens from the recipient, meaning the person who is going to get the kidney has their ability to recognize foreign particles filtered out. So when the new foreign, shall we say, immigrates into the body, it we have a vastly understaffed border patrol, TSA security, so we don't bring down the full force of our immune system on these unmatched immigrant organs. <laughs> it's very relevant to uh, modern political discourse here. One thing that we should definitely clarify and make clear in spite of all this, there are three stages of organ rejection. There's the subacute phase, which happens almost immediately when the organ goes in. And then there's an acute phase and a chronic phase, which can take years to happen. So 
while filtering antibodies can reduce the likelihood of an immediate rejection, the body of the recipient will ultimately build their antibodies back and the possibility of long-term rejection is still very real. So once you receive an organ, you still do need to take years and years of immunomodulation or medication to weaken the immune system to try to minimize that risk. Yeah, so this this is not a quick fix. This just opens up a wider range of organs so more people can get transplants, but you still have all that workup and long-term commitment to keeping it healthy. How long how long do you have Susanna when let's say someone is a donor is declared brain dead between that and putting that kidney into someone? So the clock starts counting when you cross-plant the aorta. And what that means is patient who doesn't survive some sort of catastrophic event and is deemed an acceptable organ donor, we keep their heart pumping and the blood going and the body, quote-unquote, alive, even though they're brain dead and they're no longer alive. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's best sellers, Undaria Algae Body Oil and Undaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. At that point, when they've been declared brain dead, that they're no longer going to come back and be a part of functional society, you have, as long as the heart is pumping, to get that body ready for donation. And so the teams are called in, all the blood tests are done, the matches, the recipients for the heart, the lungs, the liver, the kidneys, everybody's notified, they're brought into their respective hospital getting ready for the potential transplant. And then the medical surgeons that are going to go pick up these organs from this donor also have to get coordinated. In order of harvest, it is the heart-lung team that goes first, and then the liver comes next, then the small bowel pancreas guys, and finally those lung kidneys are going to come out. As everybody is all coordinated, we all fly into the same hospital. We're there with the donor, go into the OR, the clock starts ticking as soon as somebody shuts off the blood flow. Organs have to get out, get into ice, and get to the recipient. Within, are we talking about a few days, a few? For heart lung, it's a few hours. A few hours. And then it goes on up from there, pancreas, small bowel, liver, and the longest lasting one is the kidney. And the reason why is that once the kidney is removed from the donor's body, we stick it in a specialized kidney box that has a pump to it, and we insert special fluid into the artery of the kidney for the inflow. It circulates through the kidney, and then it comes out through the vein or the outflow. 
like an artificial uh, life box for the kidney, and they can last up to 72 hours. Similar to the box we have Walt Disney's frozen head in. Uh, <laughs> shh, Josh, God. I know, I'm giving away all our secrets. So... It's very exciting that, you know, the options available to people are so rapidly expanding. And, you know, we're, we're getting really creative, which brings us to our next story. And I, I wish I had an appropriate pun here, but I'm just going to keep my head down, my nose to the grindstone, and plow on through in that surgeons are finding some very creative ways to repair damaged knee joints. And Susanna, do you knows anything about this? So I'm not an orthopedic surgeon. I don't feel much with joints and bones. But that being said, this article is really interesting because it talks about how some orthopedic surgeons are trying to help people with arthritis and cartilage disease in the joints. Um, most of us hear about horrible debilitating arthritis, and really, what happens for a lot of us. The, the joint tissue, that little padding, the cartilage, that extra squishy uh, lives between the bones in your joint, wears down over time, over constant use. That's what osteoarthritis is. Um, you know, you just wear and tear every day, wearing down that cartilage till it's gone, and now you are dealing with the pain in that bone and bone. Yep, it's that bone-on-bone -bone violence, man. And there's previously there's been no way to replace that, right? To replace the cartilage. So our, our bodies don't know how to make more cartilage. Once it's gone, it's gone. And uh, we've tried for years to inject stuff in there, to, to take pills that would hopefully promote more of it to grow, but we know it just doesn't work. And the cartilage also doesn't have a good blood supply, which means that... Uh, it doesn't have the chance to repair and regenerate itself. So once it's damaged or gone, it's, it's done. It's toast, what, yeah. <laughs> what they figured out is that they can take cartilage from somewhere else and stick it in your knee joint where you can wear it down <laughs> and have a pain. And where did they find that cartilage? <laughs> oh! I believe these, I believe these Swiss surgeons opted for the most childlike solution and decided to pick their nose. Huh. I think they snipped out the answer quite well there. <laughs> you can pick your nose and you can pick your patient's. And now you can pick your patient's nose. And you should. There's a step in here that is really awesome. And this is at the heart of translational science. So people are always asking, hey, you know, all this lab work that people do, you know, how does it actually end up getting to me? And this is a very direct point. It goes from the nose into a laboratory where the little cells are amplified and grown in a culture dish. So you have to use the laboratory for a while, make sure that those cartilage cells stay healthy, that they populate up to a nice big number, and then you give it back to the surgeon to reimplant in the knee. And this is this is nothing to sneeze at. And... <laughs> Because, you know, because I, it, it, this goes beyond the Petri dish, right? It actually went into clinical trial, and it went, actually went into people's knees, 
And two years later, they followed up with MRIs and functional studies. Well, first it went into goats before we started putting it. The very first study was in goats, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was in goat joints, and then we started putting it into the thousands of bionic old people that are out roaming the streets. Yeah. <laughs> and this is really wonderful. It's a it's a good tissue to work with really because cartilage doesn't necessarily have to be organized in any particular fashion. You know, it's not like heart muscle or intestine. So basically for each patient, the team and they they took this with the help initially of about 10 patients in ages 18 to 55. And for each one, they began by extracting a very small biopsy specimen specimen from the nasal septum using local anesthetic, and then they multiplied the harvested cells. I can only imagine when they first took this sample, they told all the patients, got your nose! (laughs) And now I'm going to put it back, but like not on your face. I think they snipped out the answer quite well there. Hey, your nose is running. You better go catch it. And now you're running. Oh, look at that. So after seeding the cells onto the collagen membranes, they then basically cultured them for two weeks, and they got a 30 to 40 millimeter cartilage graft and then sculpted it into the correct shape and then put it as a replacement for damaged cartilage into the knee. And by the way, guys, when Dr. Josh here says sculpt, he means sculpt. Uh, This is a little bit of artistry meeting science. Uh, you really do have to go by hand and make the cartilage beautifully fit exactly where it needs to go in that person's knee, which is a person-to-person fit. So you go in with a little tool and you shape that bit of cartilage just like a sculptor would. Now, this is not quite the same as stem cells, because I know there's going to be a certain segment of the population who will worry and who's always concerned about stem cell research, but they're actually taking cells that have already specialized. So they're cartilage cells from the nose, and they're just being retransplanted to become cartilage cells from the knee. So it is your own cells. We're not taking them from anybody but you. And they are going right back into you. And they've already ready for this job. So it's not so much a, a promotion as a lateral transfer for corporate speak. Yeah, exactly. It's just like Dr. Josh or Dr. Susanna when they travel to other medical sites to be physicians. You know, We're not taking brand new unspecialized medical students. We're just taking these specialized internists and surgeons and moving them to a different location. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good analogy, actually. Yeah, yeah. And they can practice there just as well as they could in the nose or in Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> the, ar- the nose of the America. Ar- the, <laughs> the armpit, but... We can go from the nose of America to the knee of America. <laughs> the nose of America. So moving on to our, our last story is actually, there's a couple things I want to talk about from this, but we're actually going to hop on a plane and travel all the way down to Bolivia to find out about a native culture with ancient traditions making some high-tech, futuristic medical technologies. Very nice. Low-tech meets high-tech. So there is a group of people in Bolivia, the Aymara, A-Y-M-A-R-A, for whom traditionally they've been known as weavers. And if you want to picture them, you can think of, uh, you know, a Hispanic woman with pigtails and a bowler hat and a very large, you know, almost bowl-shaped, inverted bowl-shaped skirt. 
that that's not too dissimilar from、uh, from the traditional dresses of Peru, now is it? If I recall, correct, correct. And these Aymara people are indigenous to Peru and Bolivia. So you, are, we probably did see some of them on our on our trip. We danced with some of them. We danced with them during the、uh, welcoming ceremony on the lake of、uh, Lake Titicaca. We did. It is between Bolivia and Peru. So. At a very young age, many Aymara women learn the technique of weaving, the ability to have skilled weavers with steady hands, you know, so rock perfect that they can now create small high-tech medical products that can't be mass-produced. So, using using a single strand of nitinol, which is an elastic metal that I agree sounds completely made up, the Aymara women carefully weave a little top hat-shaped occluder. Meant to close the hole in a patient's heart, so they're weaving tiny little hats. <laughs> can、uh, does anybody before we start on the story? Can does, can somebody walk us through what the specific quote unquote hole? This isn't a hole in the heart where blood is just pouring out of a person. These are for pediatric. In fact, yeah, Pras and Santos. This is up to you guys. This is for specifically a pediatric heart implant. So, if you want to take a few moments to talk about what pediatric heart holes look like, yeah. <laughs> so, Pras, I know you deal with a lot of、uh, circulatory issues. So, this is a congenital circulatory issue.、Um, do you want to tell me a little bit about a、uh, hole in the heart? Yeah, basically, the heart has four chambers, and primarily, you can divide that up、um, a little bit less into, say, the right side of the heart and the left side of the heart. Now, the right and left side, the top and bottom chambers are relatively connected to each other through valves, which help blood flow forward. But the right heart and the left heart are essentially separated in the middle by a wall called a septum. There's an atrial septum and the ventricular septum for the upper and lower chambers, respectively. What happens is, in some people, it's relatively common. There's a small hole in that septum. And so what you have is blood flowing from one side of the heart to the other. If left untreated, this can be very dangerous because the difference between the right side and the left side of the heart. One of the big differences is that the right heart has blood that doesn't have oxygen in it, and the left side of the heart has blood with oxygen. So when this blood mixes, you could end up having blood that is low in oxygen content flowing through the body, and then your organs don't receive as much oxygen as they need, and it can be very dangerous. Also, the pressures are different, right? Right, right. I mean, it can cause pressure differences. It can cause、uh, structural differences between the right and left heart. One has to grow to compensate, and、uh, a lot of bad changes can happen if these are left untreated. Yes. Right. So the the end point of this, if it's un, if it's left untreated, is heart failure. So everything that Dr. Praz here is describing happens as the heart is kind of being pieced together. In the growing fetus, and there's one of these little holes which is supposed to stick around while you're in the womb because you're not breathing, because you're not getting oxygen from your lungs. So it's a special little shunt, and it's supposed to close up. But in some people, this little thing doesn't close up. In other little babies, there are other holes because those atrial septa or ventricular septa. Don't seal up all the way like they're supposed to by the time you're born. So, because of the high altitude level in Bolivia, 
which is 13,000 feet above sea level, it's certainly a lot more difficult for people with congenital heart issues. So a Bolivian cardiologist, Franz Freudenthal. <laughs> Very Bolivian name. That's what I thought too when I first... <laughs> Fran, Franz Freudenthal travels through the blood vessels and expands when it reaches the heart. <laughs> so yeah, you, you make a, a little occluder that you can open up like an umbrella. While you have it outside, it looks like a little... Oh, you can say like a little peg, like a little cylinder. You can load that into a catheter, which goes into a vein in your leg. And someone like Dr. Susanna, who's a cardiac specialist, can snake that up into the heart through your vein and then deploy. And so it pops open just like an umbrella or a little top hat, and it closes up the hole. Now... The implants in adults are mostly made by machines, but in pediatrics, you have a much smaller heart, you need a higher degree of skill. So these Aymara women who have spent lifetimes perfecting their weaving techniques actually still go and train for four months in a lab and then spend months building these little occluders that are implanted into children. And they're thrilled to do it because it keeps a cultural tradition alive. And this is also very culturally necessary because some indigenous communities believe that open heart surgery or any manipulation of the heart tarnishes the human soul. So what they're doing is creating an implant that can help children in their country and all over the world live with these congenital heart defects. They're doing it with a degree of skill that machines can't do, and they're keeping their own traditions going alive in a culturally sensitive way. There is nothing about this story that doesn't just warm my heart. Oh, warm the heart! <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. Nice. So, 40 of these women are employed in this project, and they create about 300 devices every month. That's artisanal. That's like artisanal heart. <laughs> yeah, that is. Yeah, that's like craft brewed uh, occluders. <laughs> that's awesome. Man, it looks like the high altitude in Bolivia is no match for the women's high attitude. <laughs> so those, those are all our surgical stories, but... While I was researching, and in fact only recently brought to my attention, looking up the Aymara women, I found out that you guys, you know that I love Mexican wrestling, right? Of course. Oh yeah, luchadores. I'm a big fan of, of Lucha Libre, and I have just learned that Lucha Libre is not limited to just Mexico. In fact... Mexican wrestling, as I remain thinking of it, but Lucha Libre is also located in the highlands of Bolivia, and these same Aymara women, when they're not busy weaving heart implants, are wrestlers, you guys. They're called... They're, wait, 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 wait. There's a group of them called the Fighting Cholitas. What? So these Fighting Cholitas are Bolivian women. They're, they may not be Aymaran. I... I will bounce back there. But these fighting cholitas are Bolivian women who climb into the ring in their bowler hats, in their hoop dresses, in the same traditional dress. They're part of a group called the Titans of the Ring, and they perform every Sunday in El Alto, Bolivia, for a ticket price of $1. Nice! And 
The general population of El Alto is almost entirely Aymara and Quechua residents. So the Cholitas are indigenous wrestlers who have braided hair, bowler hats, multi-layered skirts, and take flying leaps from the ring into each other and the audience. <laughs> well, that's what I was thinking. What's, what's, what's missing in WWF uh, type of fighting? It's they, They're missing skirts, because when you're not wearing... When you're, when you're only wearing shorts... You don't see the, you don't see the uh, getting flipped through the air as dramatically because I'm Google imaging this right now. Like these skirts are just flying everywhere. So I actually want to thank National Geographic for cluing me into this. They did a beautiful um, story on this. I think maybe two or three years back. And when Dr. Josh mentioned to me that these heart implant includers are being made in Bolivia, that's the first thing I thought of. And I knew you'd absolutely love it, Josh. So, which I I love. The here's how Santosh and I came together. I said, you know, look, I found a really neat science article, and he turned around and said, Mexican wrestling. <laughs> well, in this case, Bolivian wrestling, but absolutely. <laughs> I believe that's a role. Re- that's a role reversal for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> It it is a little bit, it's a little bit. But hey, that's you know we are not super specialists here. We can we can both uh, learn from each other about science and luchadores. So absolutely, and it's a great way for some of these native Bolivian women to learn to stand up for themselves. And they do use a lot of their proceeds to fight for women's rights and anti abuse and all those different things. So. Really, I think the best way, if you're worried about your condition uh, in, you know, maybe the new United States or in Bolivia, things like that, the best thing you can do is learn to Mexican wrestle. (laughs) Guys, there is no downside. (laughs) So that wraps up our our surgical journal club. That, That wraps up this week. I think our Just the Tip will stay at the Cholitas. Next time we'll be back. But in the meantime, we'd love to hear your comments, questions, and concerns. We delight in your feedback. So you can find us on Facebook, on Squarespace, on Stitcher, anywhere podcasts are downloaded. We would love to get your reviews, your comments, and we even have a Google Voice and Patreon. So if you like what we're doing, you want to support us to help us make more Maybe help me get some new decent recording equipment and even a a studio to fix all the sound problems. That'd be great. We love you to support us in any way, spiritually, emotionally, or financially. Our theme music is composed by Rachel C. Leisure. And the show is produced by myself and the rest of the Travel Medicine Podcast crew. That's it, you guys. Go out. Have fun. If surgeons and medicine can come together, you certainly can. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. Yay, happy happy travels. travels.